My name is Patricia O'Flaherty and I'm from Strokestown in County Roscommon, which is in the west of Ireland. The name of my handcraft business is Neve Porrick Handcrafts. Patricia O'Flaherty of Strokestown, County Roscommon, makes her living through a truly ancient craft, weaving baskets and other items from rushes that she harvests from the riverbed. You cut the rushes, um, the first the harvesting, that's the first thing I have to do. You cut them low down on the riverbed with a sickle, or a reaping hook as we call it, and then you tie them into sheaves or bundles, and you dry them out slowly indoors. Her specialty is something uniquely Irish, St Bridget's crosses. These are crosses with four arms of equal length that are traditionally woven yearly in Ireland and hung up in the house in a springtime ritual connected to one of Ireland's patron saints, which is thought to have origins in Ireland's ancient Celtic past. It is said to keep away evil and want, so it was a good luck charm, if you like, the the St Bridget's Cross. Different regions of Ireland have their own traditional weaving patterns. Many of these have been lost to history, but Patricia has been researching to find and preserve all the varieties she can. I met her recently at the Design Fair Showcase Ireland, and Patricia talked me through the different St. Bridget's crosses that she makes. That range was from County Clare. This one here is the three-armed design, and that's practised quite a lot in Northern Ireland. It is, uh, I think it was motivated by the the Trinity, like three in one. Uh, It could be Armagh, we're not sure, but definitely the North. This one here is called the God's Eye Range, and that's a combination of willow and rush, and that's made in Donegal and North Mayo. Patricia currently makes six different varieties of St. Bridget crosses for sale through her company, Neve Porrick Handcrafts. Patricia's crosses, made with rushes, hand-harvested from the rivers of Roscommon, dried in her house and woven by hand in a craft preserving a truly ancient tradition, are available for sale online now over at our kind sponsors, biddymurphy.com. Patricia says that having access to an international market through Biddy Murphy has helped her livelihood to grow. I do supply Biddy Murphy with some of those Simperges crosses and they're obviously selling very well. That has improved my business immensely. But despite the demand to increase production, Patricia told me she won't be changing her traditional crafting methods, whatever happens. Anything done by hand is very slow very tedious so it's not something you can rush you don't kind of set up uh, whatever and press buttons kind of and churn it out it's very Irish I mean the raw material is Irish it grows on Irish soil they're handmade by myself my two hands and uh, so it's a truly Irish product you can find Neve Porrick handcrafts for sale at biddymurphy.com our generous sponsors who specialise in authentically Irish goods and gifts made on the island of Ireland www.biddymurphy.com Thank you so much. Tough fault your oath. Hello, Ooh. welcome to Irish Passport. Uh, let's do it. Welcome to the Irish Passport. I'm Tim McInerney. I'm Naomi O'Leary. We're friends. Okay, well to Naomi. Anwar Fad Tim. This is your passport to Irish culture, history and politics. Uh-huh. I'm recording. One, One two, two, three. three. Okay. Hello and welcome back to the Irish Passport Podcast. Hi everybody. So today's episode is the second in our two-part series, which focuses on dealing with the past. 
In our last episode, we looked at the contentious question of unsolved crimes dating from the conflict in Northern Ireland and the issues that are raised when people try to find justice for them. Part of the legacy of the past is a large number of people who are living in a relatively small territory dealing with the knock-on effects of trauma and loss. Today, we'll examine the implications for that society and the different ways people who live there have of dealing with the past, seeking justice, seeking the truth, deciding to ignore it, or engaging with it creatively. Let's start by hearing some voices from an event I attended recently in Belfast. So anyway, he took me to his flat and we sat and we talked and chatted all night. He was a humorous fella. When Anne Morgan was a teacher in her late 20s in 1985, the happy coincidence of a school trip allowed her to visit her older brother Seamus Ruddy in Paris. He was 32, living there with his girlfriend. Anne and Seamus laughed over a meal of frog's legs. A happy photograph captured them sharing a drink in Sacré-Cœur before they headed back to Seamus's apartment, where they talked all night. He left in the morning for work, leaving Anne with instructions for taking the metro. It was the last time Anne or any member of her family saw him alive. Contact from Seamus abruptly stopped. Anne was soon to return to Paris, this time to identify a bag of bloody clothes that had been found in a river. But Seamus's body remained unfound. The years rolled by and his family were sworn to silence by the paramilitaries they suspected of a role in his death. Seamus was a member of the political wing of the Irish National Liberation Army, a socialist Republican paramilitary group. Immediately after his disappearance, the family's inquiries to his associates in INLA circles were met with hostility. This made them certain that the group was responsible for whatever had happened to him. We had 15 years of silence where we were not allowed to speak to anyone. We weren't allowed to speak to press. We were not allowed to speak um, outside our family. In 1998, as part of the Good Friday Agreement, the Independent Commission for the Location of Victims' Remains was established to try and find the so-called disappeared. People presumed to have been murdered in the conflict, but whose remains had never been found. Seamus Ruddy was one of the 16 victims the Commission set out to find. Tip-offs and a map scrawled by a prisoner led the search to a forest near Rouen in France. The first search came to nothing. The second search also came to nothing. That's when Anne Morgan decided to give up her teaching job to dedicate her life to finding her brother. She started by going back to the INLA for answers. After a lot of talking to, um, I call them the bad boys, I approached the organisation again, the INLA. I asked them, could they help us? But this time it was different because I asked them if they could locate the arm stumps and I, I, I sort of realised when I did say that to these boys, that's really where I should have been looking from the very beginning. Finally, in May 2017, 32 years after that happy night in Paris, Anne was finally reunited with her brother again. I remember the forensic team took us to the forest again and uh, there it was. It was a, a forensic tent. There was a forensic tent around and that just meant so much to me. Now I knew he was on his own. There was people around him. 
and I knew that he would be on his way home very, very soon. Ruddy's remains were taken to Ireland and buried with his parents. This was just one of several tragic stories told at Queen's University Belfast in an event organised to allow victims to tell their stories last summer. It was organised by the academic John Barry and Raymond McCord, the one-time bouncer from North Belfast turned campaigner. McCord's son, also called Raymond, was beaten to death at the age of 22 by members of the Loyalist Ulster Volunteer Force in 1997. McCord has long insisted that this was a case of collusion, that those responsible were British state agents, an accusation that was supported by a police ombudsman report in 2007. Almost lured his death by three individuals in the car. There's other people, but three particular individuals, and uh, they turned around and uh, took him up to uh, a quarry. They told him they were going to shoot him in the leg. And uh, they beat him to death. He had a car, and a man who, one of the killers, was on weekend parole out of prison. He, uh, he's got blocks and dropped blocks in his head and it's a horrific murder we never seen the body you know I'm, I'm say I, I went to uh, the undertakers when the body was loose and they moved the cough and led just over the side so it touches on and uh, caught the ministry on but from a day from the minute we got the, his body back, it was close calling all the way to his funeral. The young lad was just so savagely beaten to death by agents of the state, and that's exactly what happened. And the police covered it up. What was he like as a person? Rain was quiet. People in North Belfast know me as a kid, 15, 16, I know brothers. I grew up in Rathcool. I was always fighting. I got myself in and uh, my reputation as one of the tough guys in Belfast, street fighter. Ray was completely different. He, uh, he was a quiet lot. Trouble and all, street fighting, wasn't for him. He, uh, he took off there his mother, he was good looking. He was a real good person. Uh, himself and me were very close. Know, really close and uh, if it was me had been murdered he'd been doing what, I, what I'm doing he wouldn't give up our He's always been a fighter but his son's death turned him into a crusader to this day he's battling the loyalist paramilitaries that continue to exert control over his area even though it puts his life at risk he's even prepared to take on the British state and in fact in a way he already has he actually took the government to court to try and stop Brexit, which he sees as a violation of the Good Friday Agreement. And he'll continue to organise events, like that one in Belfast, to allow victims to speak, to explain their losses, and talk about their various odysseys to find truth, justice, or closure. We buried him with mom and daddy, and um, 
It's just been so important to actually find him and to bring him home. I think sometimes people don't realize how important the funeral is, you know. Um, after three days, we bury our dead. We had to wait 32 years. You know, it's just been an awful, awful long journey. But I've got a journey to go now, which is um, telling the story as best it can, and also to uh, encourage people to come forward if there's been any information for the other disappeared. And there are three more families now. Oh, Naomi, these stories, and there's so many of them like this, you know, are so heartbreaking. And it's a reminder that, you know, not only were so many of these crimes never brought to justice, uh, but also that their victims so often didn't get the recognition they deserved. Um, I suppose not so long ago, you could count on hearing about killings and maimings in Northern Ireland in, you know, pretty much every news bulletin. Uh, and we talked briefly about that in um, the last episode, you know, about the normalization of violence. And that's that's no one's fault, really. It's a, it's a phenomenon of conflicts all over the world, the kind of numbness that sets in when the unthinkable, you know, becomes an everyday occurrence. I think, actually, one of the things that was really striking about the recent killing of uh, Lyra McKee, uh, that's the 29-year-old journalist who was murdered by the new IRA not so long ago, uh, is that everyone, you know, sat up and took notice of it. Like, that fact in itself is a remarkable sign of how much things have changed in the 20 years since the Good Friday Agreement. Let's talk about Lyra McKee for a moment. We, we mentioned in part one of this series that these episodes were largely inspired by Lyra and her work. And there's one piece in particular that she wrote for Mosaic magazine, which was called Suicide of the Peace Babies. And it discussed what it was like growing up as a child of the peace agreement without seeing the promised benefits. Yeah, right. And that's a, that's a really fascinating article for, for loads of reasons. It describes uh, Lyra's life growing up just off the so-called uh, Murder Mile, uh, which got its, that's the Antrim Road, by the way, which got its nickname from the sheer number of violent deaths that occurred there during the conflict. But Lyra talks more about what life was like for her generation, you know, the younger people who were living in the shadow of this really recent and really, really violent past. Let's hear a short quote from that article, which sums up a little of what it explores. The ceasefire babies was what they called us. Those too young to remember the worst of the terror, because we were either in nappies or just out of them, when the provisional IRA ceasefire was called. I was four, Johnny was three. We were the Good Friday Agreement generation, destined to never witness the horrors of war, but to reap the spoils of peace. The spoils just never seemed to reach us. One of the most shocking statistics discussed in that article concerns the soaring rate of suicide in Northern Ireland after the Troubles. A lot of the research around this phenomenon has been carried out by a researcher named Mike Tomlinson, I believe, who is a professor of sociology in Queen's University, Belfast. So, you know, we've mentioned before that the total death count during around about the 30 years of the Troubles from uh, 1968 to 1998 stands at somewhere over 3,500. Now, Tomlinson has noted that the suicide count in Northern Ireland during that same period comes to a similar number, about 3,900. However, in the 16 years after the Troubles, already 3,709 new suicides had already been recorded. So in other words, the suicide rate had almost doubled 
since the Good Friday Agreement. And this trend doesn't look like it's going away. Between 2015 and 2016 alone, the suicide rate in Northern Ireland went up by 19%, which absolutely dwarfs all the other uh, territories in the UK. The facts that were laid out in that article by Lyra McKee inspired me to look into the issue of intergenerational trauma. Basically to ask the question why a younger generation who never lived through the conflict might still be paying a personal price for it. At the time I read it, Lyra was alive. By the time we actually made the episode, Lyra herself was dead. Lyra's uh, tragic death, as, as some of our listeners will be aware of, made international headlines. Uh, Her funeral brought practically all the major figures in British, Irish and Northern Irish politics into the same room for the first time, you know, in months, if not uh, in years. And the awkwardness of that situation was unavoidable because all of those politicians who were sitting in the pews had failed Northern Ireland over the last two years. And there was a sense that they should be shamed for their role or the level of culpability they arguably had in the situation that led to Lyra's death. Essentially, their their lack of ability to compromise left Northern Ireland without a government, just as Brexit was leaving the territory vulnerable to huge economic damage and the return of violence. That sort of awkwardness and the political failure that was hanging over the funeral was so glaring that the priest actually openly reprimanded them from the altar. I command our political leaders for standing together in Cregan on Good Friday. I am, however, left with a question. Why, in God's name, does it take the death of a 29-year-old woman with her whole life in front of her... the death of a 29-year-old woman with her whole life in front of her to get to this point. Also, as the politicians came up to offer their respects, Atelier's partner, Sarah Canning, used the moment to reprimand those politicians for allowing this vacuum of governance that has allowed violent actors to step in and fill the gap where there is no one at the moment. She explained that uh, to Channel 4 in this clip. I thought... When am I ever going to have this opportunity again? You know, no one's going to tell me what I can and can't say at this point because I've literally just lost the love of my life. She's been murdered. And the inactivity of these people has in no small part led to the rise in these groups. Karen Bradley offered her condolences. I accepted them graciously and I wasn't rude, but I, I did tell her that, you know, she was doing a pretty terrible job as a Secretary of State. Um, her lack of knowledge around Northern Ireland was appalling. She needed to go and educate herself how on earth she had taken a job where she had no knowledge of the area. So what was McKee writing about when she described that issue of intergenerational trauma? It essentially refers to the domino effects that conflict can have, that can pass down through a whole community and to a younger generation as well. If you think about it, you know, children might be growing up with traumatised parents They're living in a context of a society that's still in many ways defined by the conflict. And also in a place where politics is unable to address everyday concerns because the old divisions are still so strong, just taking up so much oxygen. Though the conflict technically ended with the peace deal in 1998, paramilitaries are of course still killing and still active, still recruiting, 
still dealing out violence and still dominating some communities. And, you know, in Northern Ireland, actually, the form of the Good Friday Agreement uh, complicates facing these things uh, quite a bit. And the peace deal in spirit, you know, was all based on compromise. And like, that's a compromise that's hugely personal from individuals, you know, very, very um, normal people who are implored to move on uh, together and put some very tragic events of the past behind them. Um, And that was the only way it was going to work. And of course, it has worked a lot better than was expected. Of course, nothing is perfect. But that doesn't mean that those compromises were or are easy. And it doesn't mean that the pain that was there is erased. You know, um, people are still continuing to live with that. For one example, there's the the release of paramilitary prisoners. Um, We discussed this in our last episode. So those who are convicted nowadays of paramilitary offences that happened before 1998 can only be imprisoned for a maximum of two years. And that's part of the deal. It's part, it's part of the incentive to combatants to stop fighting, lay down their arms and commit to the peace, you know. So if you continue to fight, it has a much more serious consequence. And the crimes of the past are the ideas that people are putting them behind them. Of course, another example of that kind of trade-off came up in that victims conference, which we began this episode with. You might remember the mention of that specific organisation Uh, which was set up to search for the remains of disappeared people like Seamus Ruddy. It's called the Independent Commission for the Location of Victims' Remains, and its job is to try to get people who might know where bodies are buried to come forward so that they can find them. And part of the deal there is that any evidence that's given to the commission is inadmissible in criminal court. And it's largely kept secret, with only limited amounts being disclosed to the families. And also the forensic testing that goes on if anybody is discovered is limited to kind of inquest purposes to discover how they died, not with the purpose of discovering who did it, if you know what I mean. Um, And essentially, these are ways to encourage disclosures by reassuring people, anyone who might have information, that they won't face prosecution or consequences themselves after coming forward. Similarly, there was also an entire police unit um, that was set up to investigate unsolved murders that was called the Historical Inquiries Team or the HET or the HET. But that had its own problems. Um, It got criticism from all parts of the community. And it was actually closed in 2014 due to budget cuts, uh, which means that now there are fewer avenues than ever to look into historical crimes. Of course, families want different things. So some of people want those responsible for deaths to be prosecuted and to serve time. Others want the truth. Others just want to put it all behind them and know nothing more about it at all, don't want to engage. And of course, there's another facet of the Good Friday Agreement that's easy to overlook, which is that the agreement itself was something of a cultural shock to people who had been living in a state of conflict for 30 years. Some people had known nothing but the troubles all their lives. And the peace was a foreign country, if you know what I mean. It can, it can be challenging to adapt to that change and know what to do with yourself, you know, given your experience that is suddenly doesn't have a place in this new world. Naomi, now you recently visited the WAVE Trauma Centre in Belfast uh, to try to understand the work of those who are dealing with situations like this. So why don't we take a listen to Damien McNally, who has his own story of transgenerational trauma himself, and he led a report for WAVE on the issue. Hi, I'm Damien McNally. I originally came from Ardoin in Belfast. And we're here today in the WAVE Trauma Centre in Belfast 
I was 26 whenever I came into Wave. The age of 26 was my father died. He was killed in Ardoin whenever I was four months old. And he was 26. And I always think about why did I come into Wave at that stage. And I think it's really whenever I had outlived my own parent. A year and a half before that, my dad's mum died. And I think that hit me pretty hard because it was my kind of connection to my dad in some way so just a number of things like that happened at the one time so I thought look I just want to go ever, you know go in and speak to others who've been through it. The Ardoin where Damien and his family lived was one of the major flashpoints for the troubles in Belfast. It's a small predominantly nationalist and working class enclave that's pushed right up against the predominantly unionist district of Mountain View. Because of this geographical location, it's historically been an area of high tension and much of the district is surrounded by peace walls separating the communities. The Ordoin is um, a well-known, highly Republican area, uh, but Damien's father had nothing to do with the Republican movement. Uh, he was just an ordinary guy, a plumber, uh, who was shot at random by Loyalist paramilitaries just as he came out of a local bookmaker's with his friend. Ten others were shot that same weekend, and that year of 1976 saw the second highest number of killings in the whole conflict. That kind of random killing of innocent civilians was not uncommon, unfortunately. Some of them were tit for tat in retaliation for other bombs, for example, that had been set off by the IRA to target defence forces, for example. But it was also a way of terrorising the larger community by making everyone a potential target. I suppose when people think about intergenerational trauma, there's all different definitions of it, intergenerational, transgenerational trauma. But basically what you're talking about is really wide, how and why does trauma really spread from one generation to the next? How does the trauma that maybe a parent has been through, how does that then get spread and transmitted really onto the next generation? So you'd obviously have a lot of work, for example, and it really started off looking at the longer term impact of the Holocaust. People think about trauma as being somebody's, you know, either injured or, you know, badly injured in a car crash, and that's the trauma. Whereas I would say that the trauma is, yes, the event that happened, but then the aftermath of that. And then obviously, as a lot of work has talked about, for example, the trauma of Vietnam victims and the trauma, and people think about the trauma of what they saw in Vietnam, what they witnessed, what they experienced. But we would need to talk about actually the trauma of them coming home into a peacetime setting where their own traumatic experiences sit within their own lives again and they're trying to kind of readjust the life again and not even that process can be traumatic. Importantly, not all of Northern Ireland experienced the troubles in the same way. Violence was generally worst in working class inner city areas where economic deprivation was exacerbated by tight proximity between loyalist and republican districts. Areas like the Ardoin were known as interface areas and if violence was going to kick off anywhere, those neighbourhoods were particularly vulnerable. In more middle class or suburban areas of the same city, you might have a totally different experience of the conflict. Places like North Belfast and other areas like West Belfast, some areas were very heavily affected by the troubles and some not so much so. And I think the main thing for me would be that people were ultimately living in two different realities. And that's what you're talking about. You know, a lot of the time the troubles are related to deprivation as well. So people are going up in a place of social deprivation to start with. But then they have these trauma-related troubles experiences on top of that. So people can feel very, very isolated. And particularly whenever they haven't got answers to their questions, they haven't got justice and that sort of thing. It's, it can be just very, very difficult. It'd be, it could be like anybody who's experienced any kind of injustice in life. You're trying to deal with this and trying to um, find answers and just get on with your life as best you can. 
And maybe people around you just don't understand. People are just living in a completely different reality to somebody who's actually sitting beside them. Damien explained that he wanted to try and bridge these various gaps by looking more closely at the common experiences of grief across different communities and walks of life. Um, Also, he wanted to help people deal with the current system of redressment, which does not always lead to resolution or to justice. My small way of trying to do something about that is to talk about people's common experiences of grief, loss, whatever else it may be. And as you know, we're a very individualistic society, people would say. So we over-medicalize these things. It puts it back onto the individual. You've got your individual issue. You've got your individual issue. I've got my individual issue. And we all have to kind of find ways of coping with it ourselves. That's not going to go anywhere. There's different routes. Obviously, there were, there were people convicted for, for murders during the Troubles um, and people put in jail, but then obviously under their prisoner release scheme uh, after the Good Friday Agreement, people were released. And I think that was difficult for people to deal with. But then for others, like our, my own family, where there was nobody ever um, really brought to justice for, for killing my dad, that you have at the minute, you have the Historical Investigations Unit. There's all ongoing kind of things, looking at, at an unresolved inquest and that sort of thing. But... The main issue with a lot of these is that you're dealing with cases that happened a long time ago, so evidential opportunities, no forensics and that sort of thing weren't the most developed. When we have at at the case, and there's research there that basically says that there's only been four um, actual convictions have taken place out of a a number over 1,000 or 1,500 reopened murder investigations. You can see how hard it's going to be for somebody to get actual justice their day in court and that sort of thing. So... I have really come to the place that we kind of need to let those mechanisms take place, let them happen. But I say that people need to be very realistic about their expectations, about what it can deliver for them. And even if somebody gets their day in court within the justice mechanisms, then the maximum sentence somebody's going to serve is two years in prison. And then, you know, that person will get out and everybody has to get on with their lives then. Damien raised a really important point with me about how trauma is not only confined to those who have experienced death and loss, There are also a massive number of people who were seriously injured during the Troubles who have never really been recognised as victims or compensated for the life-changing physical and mental effects of this. They just haven't been given priority. Within all these mechanisms, there's really nothing for the injured. So if you've been injured in a shooting or an explosion or whatever, these mechanisms offer very, very little or nothing for you. And the only way you may get some information about what happened is that if somebody was killed in an incident that you were injured in. But apart from that, there's nothing. So there's obviously, there's a lot of work going on at the moment for the injured, really, but an acknowledgement about how they weren't able to go out and work and support themselves because of their, their physical injuries. So that is a thing to say about the mechanisms. The current system, Damien told me, is not getting any better as time goes by. And of course, political deadlock means there's been no functioning assembly to address all this since January 2017. What we have to remember is people are dying. Most of the impact of the Troubles was like in the the kind of early, mid-70s. And those generations are dying off and they've never got any kind of answers. So those mechanisms are, they're out for consultation, but they're going to require political agreement for them to go anywhere. And at the minute, it's not looking likely. And... When we have the obviously the, the main big issue of Brexit at the minute and the way that's affecting political relationships, I think that um, the, the the potential for things to be done and implemented here at the minute is receding. But I think then what also happens is that whenever these things are kind of put in the kind of well, that's a political issue. That's the only way they can resolve this, and we'll have to wait until there's some kind of political agreement. These kind of wider societal based issues aren't being talked about. 
Um, and it's almost like let organisations like WAVE and others do a lot of the counselling, psychotherapy and that sort of thing and almost kind of keep people's symptoms manageable. It's not happening, you know, and that's and that's what happened today. We're at, we're at a massive pause at the minute. You know, we have Brexit. We've hadn't had a functioning government here for now. Are we at the second anniversary round about now? I think it is, two years. I think we're in that funny space at the minute where it's slightly too close for comfort time-wise and we don't want to talk about it too much because if we think... Things politically are kind of sensitive and delicate at the minute. Don't be, don't be open to this kind of worms. Now, even talking about trauma in Northern Ireland, uh, Damien mentioned, can be a bit of a bind for people. You know, on the one hand, uh, people want to move on, um, but on the other hand, they don't want to let the memory of what happened to them and their families, you know, be forgotten. He also brought up the issue of suicide in Northern Ireland and how it can be seen as a kind of warning sign about the depth of trauma in the wider community. Uh, at one end of the spectrum you have non-communication we don't talk about it we almost kind of pretend that it never happened um, don't discuss it it's too too hard to and then at the other end of that scale you have this happened to us and you need to remember it and you need to kind of remember what these people did to you and you're you know it's, it's up to you to carry this it's at family level but it can also be within community levels and community narratives that take place about this is what happened and you just take it at that and if you can't if you can't sit in with this narrative, you're not welcome. And then it kind of almost a societal narrative about, well, the troubles only happen in certain areas and it happened to certain people because and it didn't, you know, it happened to them because they were involved in some way or it happened to them wrong place, wrong time or whatever it is. And that's just the way it is. And we don't talk about that because it's, it's far too complicated and difficult and we don't want to start polluting the next generation of people. You have a number of reports out, reports out by Mike Tomlinson at Queen's University now, I suppose at the time, Mike Thompson's real kind of focus was it was kind of men who were middle-aged now who were young during the Troubles and people asking, right, why is there now uh, a bit of a spike and a number of suicides here? And they tried to look at it and say, was it due to the recession and that sort of thing happening at the time? But actually they said, no, that wasn't the case at all. When you mix together the actual Troubles happening here with social deprivation, it is a major issue. I've spoken to um, people who've said that you know, people who've actually lost a parent in the Troubles found the whole kind of Troubles around them comforting because it almost made it feel more normal about what happened to them. And then once that all stopped, it was like, oh my God, what happened to me was completely abnormal. This isn't normal anymore. I miss the rioting. I miss what happened here. And it, it, it was just a, a way that made things seem more, and their own experience, seem more real and more normal. And I have to say, I can identify that to a certain extent because... I quite like watching some of the programmes. Remember why RT would have had really in the years and that sort of thing? And now in Northern Ireland, you have this programme called uh, Up Goes Northern Ireland, and I have to recommend it. It was a very good programme. What Damien is talking about here, by the way, listeners, are television programmes, very popular, uh, the kind that do short roundups of historical moments on a year-by-year basis, and they play music hits from each year as a soundtrack. But whenever it shows you different troubles-related events, you're thinking, God, it's re- you're thinking, it's just really negative for me to be thinking... You get almost nostalgic. That sounds perverse, doesn't it? I know it does, but anyway, um, but it, it almost made it, it made it me remember, actually, this is what we went through here. And this is what's our normality. And now a lot of people are living in a world that's maybe kind of alien to them. I've tried to understand how I've been affected by what's happened to me throughout my whole life. And it's, it's a funny one because it's even whenever I would have went up to my dad's grave, you're going, well, actually, you never met this person. I was four months when my dad was killed. And one of the things that would be kind of what I'd find hard is that I've never there was never a photograph taken of me and my dad, you know, it just, just wasn't done in the seventies that way, you know. And my sister was born in nineteen seventy two and I had another sister born in nineteen seventy four. 
and unfortunately she died two months old at the cot death and then I was born in 76 in January and then my dad was killed in June of 76 and my mother was 23 at that stage so she had to deal with losing her child and her husband at the age of 23 and then thinking living in very kind of poor circumstances living in Ardoin, I just don't know you know and for me as a parent now I saw those things now really affect me personally I think I don't know how my mother ever did that or how she got through it or how difficult it must have been for her and I feel really I feel bad and I feel guilty about it now I have two kids myself now I have an 13 year old boy and an 8 year old girl and um, where it would just be silly things like me being able to watch my son playing football every Saturday and I really enjoy that um, but again, there's always that part of you thinking, this is just so unfair that my dad never got to see any of this. And what, what gets me, you know, is that my dad was shot on the Saturday and he died on the Monday. But over those two days, he was coming in and out of consciousness and he knew he was dead. So he knew he was never going to see us grow up. And I, that's the part I really struggle with. I struggle with what was going through his head at the time. And it fills you with that kind of... There's be still some nights I would wake up just with that thought and it hit you out of nowhere and you think what that man must have been going through was horrendous you know and it's those sort of things you get really emotional about it and you just can't you can't switch it off I really can't even talk to my kids about what happened because I don't want to kind of put it on to them that's the kind of things I like to talk about when people talk about transgenerational trauma because you have to go on through your life then and kind of go through the everyday life experiences then but that has an interaction with what happened to you in the past and you can't just switch it off there was a number, for example, there was a couple of arrests made for my dad's case a number of years ago there, out of nowhere. People arrested in Belfast, London, wherever it was. And there wasn't enough evidence, but anyway, if somebody was convicted and put in jail, I would have known that person was. They could have been living near to me. How am I supposed to deal with that? But it also doesn't stop what I have to go on and do in your everyday life. For Damien, one of the most important ways to deal with trauma is for people to recognise their own strength in the face of adversity and to give themselves credit for having come through the other side. Damien McNally's main aim is to try to give a voice back to the voiceless. At a time when the Assembly has been collapsed for more than two years, it's harder than ever for ordinary, everyday concerns to be addressed, especially those that don't fit into a neat political narrative. You know, you've got ten of two polar opposite narratives of probably republicanism versus the British state, and I can understand people coming from those perspectives. That's fine, but they, because of the voting patterns at at the minute, they're the dominant narratives, and anybody who doesn't fit in with those narratives doesn't have any kind of voice, and those people should have a voice. And because of what's happening around Brexit at the minute, these political voices are the only voices being heard. And I can understand people are concerned around Brexit. So this whole thing about dealing with the legacy of the past and all that kind of goes away down the chain of, of priorities. I can understand that. But it will. it's not going to go away, unfortunately. We have to get back to hearing the voices of ordinary people. And we need to talk what unifies us and what we have in common. And that's the only way we're ever going to get through any of this. I 
think it's definitely worth looking at all this through a longer historical lens, actually. Um, you know, it's really interesting what we heard there about the voices of ordinary people, um, because, of course, that's a problem that is famously also common to historical narratives. Um, you know, notoriously enough, uh, European historiography has primarily revolved around the lives of white male military leaders, really. And it's only in recent decades that we've just begun at the very, very base to hear the perspectives of women or children or people of colour, say. And in Ireland, of course, like elsewhere, historical memory is overwhelmingly dominated by those grand narratives, like the nationalist narrative, the colonial narrative, the revisionist narratives, and so on. That's a really interesting issue right now, actually, because since the recent centenary celebrations of the Easter Rising in 2016, there's been this huge emphasis on letting ordinary voices be heard and come to the fore. You know, and there's something actually kind of cyclical about that, because, like... The Irish Revolution itself, which has been celebrated, you know, in the last few years in these centenaries, that was in itself a way of dealing with the past, the, the colonial past. And the cultural revolution that accompanied the political revolution between 1916 and 1922 essentially set up independent Ireland's historical narrative and transformed the way people in Ireland thought about their past trauma. That's really interesting. It's kind of storytelling to turn the negative into the positive, I guess. So, for example, there was an explosion of Irish political nationalism at the end of the 19th century, which was, in, uh, in its way, a, a method of dealing with the famine and the after effects of that. And, of course, the movement around the same time of starting to value and celebrate what was Gaelic uh, was a way of dealing with generations of colonial shame and the idea that Irishness was something negative. But of course, post-independence Ireland also saw huge amounts of trauma, um, not to mention the civil war, which hasn't even begun to be dealt with really, um, mass immigration, incarceration and coercion of women and children in religious and state organisations, and of course, decades and decades of economic deprivation. Yeah, right. And like, it's interesting that, you know, we're only really beginning to admit that a lot of these things happened, you know, in the first place in recent years. And that's coinciding with the fact that a lot of these things are changing and have been changing radically in the Republic. And those commemorations, you know, that we talked about are, have, you know, fallen at a, quite a good moment, actually. To Like, they've given us as a country, really, a, a curious kind of outlet in which to really interrogate and take apart our past. And in that context, there's definitely a sense that a certain cycle of trauma is coming to an end. Now, it could be argued uh, at the same time that it's only really been since the Good Friday Agreement that the Republic of Ireland has been able to begin to come to terms with partition and what the long-term effects of that were, and of course what the long-term effects of the conflict that was happening just so recently across the border were. So the opening up of the border in 1998, you know, it also opened up all these new avenues avenues of understanding between the two parts of the island, and that hadn't been possible for generations. And that feels like a journey, really, that's only just beginning. Of course, we have to mention it. Like, Brexit is this huge discordant thing that's kind of interrupted this narrative or trend that was going on. Because um, right in the middle of this sort of historical reckoning in, uh, in both parts of the island and the kind of relative move towards a more healthy politics um, in the north. We, we saw a movement in the other direction in Britain with English nationalism suddenly dominating politics and great nostalgia for the days of the empire becoming increasingly prominent. A mixture of kind of dismissal and contempt towards Irish concerns, which has done an incredible amount of damage in a very short time 
not just to political relations between Ireland and the UK at a senior level, but also in the perceptions of ordinary people. Like Irish people have been quite shocked to see how many old attitudes and stereotypes were lurking just under the surface in Britain. Um, And likewise, it's quite interesting to see how past historical injustices remain very raw, very meaningful to a younger generation. We're very quick to reach for them. Yeah, right. That is actually really interesting. There's this whole um, kind of Twitter meme that's like the Brits are at it again that has <laughs> resurfaced yeah. um, for, for this exact kind yeah. of like feeling. It's been like a rich seam for meme making. There's like hmm. tan-splaining <laughs> is a word now, referencing <laughs> like the black and tans and I, people often talk about rummaging for their pikes in the thatch when they see in a particularly offensive comment. Right, that's a, that's a seventeen ninety eight rebellion um, reference there for our, for our big seventeen ninety eight rebellion fans that we, we know we have. Um, anyway, right, listen, Naomi, something I wanted to bring up actually uh, when it comes to this long term historical trauma, north and south, is this culture of silence, um, which I suppose isn't um, isn't alien to lots of uh, countries or, or cultures. That have gone through trauma. Uh, we talked about this a little bit in our Civil War episode, and Damien mentioned it there too. Um, you know, so this is the situation of not wanting to dredge up painful memories, but also not wanting to let them be forgotten either. And that's a huge part of the Irish experience, especially in the 20th century. Um, I recently spoke to Roy Foster, who is Emeritus Professor of Irish History at the University of Oxford. Uh, he spoke to me about silence and memory in Ireland, and how there is an increasing disparity between the Island of Ireland and neighbouring Britain when it comes to dealing with that aspect of our past. I think Irish memory works in very subtle and strange ways and often through stories which are full of gaps, very deliberate gaps and elisions. The functions of memory and of forgetting in Irish history and the necessity to strategically forget as well as to, to remember do you think that uh, the Irish kind of keen sense of history uh, at this political moment, is it a handicap or is it an asset for us? I think it's an asset because I think, and the commemorations of 1916 showed this very clearly, I think that we're approaching memory in a less triumphalist and mindlessly celebratory way than we used to. I'm also very struck living in the country I do live in, which is Britain, how patchy and ignorant the historic memory of the communal historic memory in Britain is that things like the glorious revolution of 1688 are more or less ignored when they when a commemoration does come up whereas they bang on all the time about Churchill and the spirit of the Blitz for very uh, adventitious political reasons at the moment. Um, I think in Ireland we negotiate historic memory, we've begun I should say to negotiate historic memory in a much more complex and, if I can use the word, pluralistic way. And I think I I was sceptical, as many others in the academy were, about whether there would be too much of a sort of jamboree element to the commemorations of 1916, as there had been, I thought, for the commemorations of 1798, which were used for very political reasons. But I think this wasn't the case in uh, 2016, 17, 18. Of course, the the real challenge is coming up with the civil war, which will require a great deal of uh, judicious impartiality and admission of unpleasantnesses. Um, And we'll just have to see how that goes. But I I, I have some confidence that it will be approached with the kind of sophistication and essentially restraint, which I think the commemoration 
celebrations were in 2016. I'm optimistic about not falling back into those oversimplifications. I think enough blood has been spilt and enough care has been taken to negotiate the the recent past for that not to happen. What I think is a tragedy about the, the Brexit idiocy is that Anglo-Irish relations are being projected back into a another era, uh, which I thought was long gone, of condescension and ignorance from the British side and anger and resentment and even a certain understandable chippiness on the Irish side. I mean, when you have respected journalists like John Humphreys, you know, suggesting to Irish politicians that the obvious thing would be for Ireland to leave the EU and more or less rejoin rejoin the UK, you just throw up your hands in despair. It shows such an ignorance of both of of history and of Irish psychology. And the notion that Europe can actually increase one's sense of sovereignty and independence and empowerment, as it has done for Ireland, is so alien to the post-imperial British cast of mind that I think, I, I feel I live in a country at the moment that's looking over its shoulder all the time, whereas in Ireland I get the sense of a, a more progressive outlook. I was speaking to Professor Foster because he was in Paris recently to talk about his upcoming book about the poet Seamus Heaney, uh, which will be coming soon, I believe, from Princeton University Press. Um, I thought that it was quite appropriate, actually, that that was what he was talking about, because the poetry of Seamus Heaney is, in its own way, a lot about dealing with the past. Yeah, we couldn't really go without mentioning Heaney. Um, So, of course, the famous poet and Nobel Prize winner was born near the town of Castle Dawson in 1939, so just 17 years after partition. And he began publishing poetry while he was working as a lecturer in Belfast in the 1960s. Uh, He later went on to live in Dublin. He's become one of the most popular poets in the English language, um, and he actually turned down the position of Nobel laureate uh, for Britain, um, because, of course, he didn't consider himself British. But here's an amazing fact, Tim. At one point, his poetry books made up 60% of the sales of living poets in the UK. Wow, what a bloody hell. Right. Yeah, that's, that, actually, that stirs some memories um, in the back of my head there. That's quite a figure. Um, you People know, used like to call a, him Famous Seamus. <laughs> Naomi, Naomi, you met Seamus Heaney once and you have a story <laughs> about it. Go on, hit us. Okay, I I was having a pint in the Palace Bar in Temple Bar one time. I was just with a group of um, international people, actually, and there was one American. And we saw Seamus Heaney come in and, you know, he was recognisable with his shock of white hair. And the American was totally starstruck, you know, when we told him that it was Seamus Heaney, the Nobel Prize winner. And everyone was extremely blasé. And uh, anyway, he he went up to the counter. He was with a few a few um, a few companions and ordered a pint of Guinness. And then, in typical Dublin fashion, the, sh- the cry goes up: "Still digging, Seamus." <laughs> uh, it's a, it's a, that's a perennial story, Naomi. That never goes out of fashion. It's a, yeah, <laughs> anyone will recognise that if they had to study his poem "Digging" in uh, the Leaving Cert. Of a standard piece in school books across across the country, which is um, about yeah. ex- excavating the past. Exactly right. That's what I was about to say. Now it's it's really fitting, actually. Um, you know, because loads of Heaney's poetry works on this motif of like excavation, the, the burying, and the rediscovering of history, and the hidden bits of the past that are beneath our feet all the time. You know, just below the surface. Yeah, it's probably it's the predominant theme of his work. Basically, how the past kind of haunts us horribly, but can also be mined in a kind of creative endeavor. Um, and also the 
echoes that there are between the violence of ancient times and the violence of today. Now, Roy Foster had some really interesting things to say about uh, Heaney in that context. Uh, in particular, he noted that at the time that Seamus Heaney first started writing in the mid to, um, or early to mid 60s, um, there was still a sense of optimism about the future of Northern Ireland. And, you know, that the troubles, you know, wasn't an omen in the air. It was no way seen as inevitable. So uh, let's hear more from that. He writes a lot about buried history, famously in the Bog poems, but he also writes a lot about family history, his own family and that of others. And I think one way in which he approaches the buried history of the North is to examine small incidental conjunctions and associations and friendships and to celebrate them at the same time as recognizing the the the, the horrors the, the what he called the noxious side of things a poem like uh, the other side which is about essentially community relations in the ulster countryside is i think very emblematic of that i think while he does write especially in books like fieldwork where he has very moving elegies to people who are the victims of sectarian murders where he does that, he, he balances it with a, a kind of humanistic approach to to people getting on with each other, which very much reflects his own life. Um, I think it's often forgotten, though, it's, it's nowadays historians are paying more attention to it, that in the early to mid-60s, there was a very strong sense, especially in, I suppose, liberal intellectual circles in the North, that things were actually getting better. We tend to think of the plunge into horror from 1969 as something inevitable, like a, a boil being burst or something. But there is an alternative way of looking at it, which is that it was an unforeseen and contingent lurch into a path of horror that didn't have to happen. And I suspect that Seamus would take rather that line um, than the inevit- inevitableist one. That tradition of dealing with the past creatively is ancient, going back to the memorialising of battles in the oral tradition of literature, just like the bitter conflict recounted in the Tawn, which we've talked about in our Half Pint series, um, to the tradition of keening poems, which were written when someone dies to elegize their life. Just think now, like how many traditional songs um, that might be sung very early on a Saturday morning or Sunday morning in Ireland mythologize a death or a struggle. And those are songs that have a very, very close relationship to poetry, of course. Often they they both are poems and songs. And interestingly, that creative dealing with the past is something that's flourishing right now in a new way in popular culture. Tim, you probably knew I was going to bring this up. Have you seen Derry Girls? Uh, yes, of course. I knew you were going to elbow that in somewhere. Um, yes, indeed. I'm just much like yourself, Naomi. I have been watching and rewatching Dairy, Dairy Girls uh, pretty much on repeat. Uh, for I'm the on last my while. second watch, actually. <laughs> oh yeah, I haven't actually now. I'm only um, on the first series, but I'll, I'll watch and rewatch the second one as soon as I get hold of it. Um, if you don't know, listeners, uh, Dairy Girls is a short comedy series. It follows the exploits of a group of teenagers in Derry uh, during the 1990s. So of course, it's close to close to the hearts of people in our generation who have. You very vivid memories of uh, what it was like to be a teenager that, that I, at that time. Um, it's hard to put your finger on it, but it's, you know, it's at once very deeply funny and very deeply touching. And I suppose maybe it's that familiarity plays a part in it. Also, you know, a memory of how things used to be in Northern Ireland or just the memory of like the ridiculousness of being a teenager. Um, but at the same time, it also shows up, you know, what a bizarre and dramatic set of circumstances dominated the lives of ordinary people in Northern Ireland. Such a short time ago. 
to me, it really showed just how powerful uh, comedy is, you know, because it gives the violent context um, all the more force that, you know, these people are just brilliantly, hilariously alive and the conflict is totally incidental to them, you know. And it's also weirdly nostalgic with the great, like, 90s music and teenage culture, but also somehow brings a sense of, like, shaming or something, you know, that these lives and this context are, are completely fresh on screen. Uh, there's this sense that they've been ignored, totally overlooked, like the humanity of the people of Derry has been weirdly missing from popular culture and this is a kind of redress. Yeah, that's a really good point, actually. I absolutely agree. And I did feel that actually quite like distinctly when watching it. Um, yeah, I was like, yes, look, look, there are the soldiers yeah. with their guns. There's the, there's the bus getting searched. Like, look, everybody, you know. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. look at these normal see. people. Yeah, yeah, like, why haven't we seen this before, actually? Um, you know, like, uh, our listeners might remember one of our guests on the live show um, I did from London, uh, Seamus O'Reilly, who's a, one of a, a famous Twitterati figure. Um, and he, uh, he was mentioning how all his English friends in London where he lives you know had suddenly discovered of the existence of a place called Derry you know uh, but that they were all wondering how close it was to Londonderry <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, no. anyway, for um, listeners who are interested, uh, uh, Derry Girls is a really fun way to get a startlingly honest perspective uh, of Derry in the 90s. We're giving it a really good plug here, Naomi, actually. And uh, uh, just like you said, you know, the humour is a really powerful way to look at that from a different perspective. So yeah, check it out. Um, so there's actually loads more um, apart from that particular series that deal more directly with politics. But it's interesting that a lot of what's coming out now is, is from the female perspective. Um, so, I mean, obviously Derry Girls would, would fall into that with its main characters all being female. But then there's also the likes of the um, of Milkman by Anna Burns, which recently won the Booker Prize. Um, and then uh, the TV series Rebellion, for example, which it, that told the story of the Easter Rising through the lives of uh, women rather than the famous rebels, uh, male rebels that we've all, you know, heard so much about. And Tim, on this theme, I was at a poetry reading in Tala in Dublin a little while ago. And I heard a voice, um, which as soon as I heard it, I knew we had to have it on the podcast. And I think it's perfect to end this episode with. So the person I heard speaking was Gail McConnell, who is a poet from Belfast who lectures in Queen's University as well. And her poetry is almost uncanny in how it ties together all of the subjects that we have been covering in these two episodes. Okay, so let's hear from Gail McConnell with her poem, Start Out. I'm going to read a poem of mine called Start Out. And the last word of every line is out. I suppose the poem I had in mind was a poem by Paul Muldoon called They That Wash on Thursday, in which the last word of every line is the word hands. So I make reference to that poem here. But my poem is really thinking about the prison in Northern Ireland known as Long Cash or the Maze in the period after the British government removed the special category status of paramilitary prisoners and the Thatcherite government refused to recognise the reality of political violence and of Irish republicanism. So it's thinking about that context in the prison of the dirty protests and the hunger strikes of the late 1970s and the early 1980s. And the poem mentions POs and SOs, and those are prison officers and senior officers. And my father was one, um, stuck really being asked to enforce bad government policy in a context in which he knew it to be both impossible and wrong. 
September 1983 saw the largest prison escape in UK history, where 38 provisional IRA prisoners escaped from the Longcash or Mays prison. The following year, my father was shot and killed outside our home, and I address my father towards the end of the poem, but it really begins with me talking to an imagined mother, who then speaks at length about birth and death. I suppose out is just one of those words with many resonances. So this is Start Out. It's not the thought of being hoiked out with tongs that bothers me. It's the fact you're out and out unsure. The facts you can't or won't spell out. The age I was, I think they must have knocked me out and hauled you out with forceps. It comes out over tea and scones. An out-of-date current pinched in thumb and forefinger, as out the story comes, quite out of the blue. I was out of action for a while, of course, but better to be out of danger than in them stirrups, your legs outflung and all akimbo. You'd have to be out of your mind. At forty, I wanted out of harm's way, so I didn't push you out. The cons, as they say, outweighed the pros. Or was it the other way? Them lifting you out, is that the risky bit? I can't figure it out. Not at my age. The days, they merge. Out goes the light, and you wake up to another. Soon I'll be out of this world for good. Over and out. Like a fox rock wife or mouth straight out of Beckett via Belfast, this imagined mother reads out her lines before I catch myself at it and the thing gets out of hand. The monologue outsourced from here or there, like the one with all the hands, singled out for praise by those in the know. So, out with it, I suppose. It's the long cash breakout I've been thinking of, and all that came before and after. Time out of mind. The faces looking back at you when you look out the people, the blankets handed out, the breakfasts measured out, the returned counted out, the spray gun painting Brits out, the spray gun painting takes out, the insides painted out, POs and SOs out of their depth, so out on sick leave, in or out of the cell, all under one roof and all hung out to dry as the reruns loop out over the airwaves, crime is crime is crime, until it cuts out, the brick it hits the radio full whack, knock out. Did you think about getting out? I don't know why you stuck it out or started it at all. And when those men came out of the house across the way, guns out and up the drive, what words fell out of your mouth before you couldn't get them out? I never quite came out, the umpire calls it, outside the line. The Wimbledon camera zooms out, the connection has timed out. Theseus spins it out, the yarn he tells about that clue, and catching out the beast, howling out in pain, as though he'd first sketched it out. Ariadne knows the thing that holds it all can't quite be straightened out.
Um, I actually re-listened to that recording for the first time since recording it after a gap of months and tears were running down my face. I just think it's so powerful. Um, If you liked it too, listeners, good news. We have another longer poem by Gail McConnell, read by Gail McConnell, along with an explanation of its meaning called Typeface. And we're going to put it up on our Patreon page, especially for our Patreon supporters. This poem discusses what it was like for Gail to receive a report from the historical inquiries team that we were discussing about her father's death. You can hear the full poem and the context over at patreon.com forward slash the Irish passport. I think that brings us to a close. As always, we'd like to thank our sponsor, BiddyMurphy.com, the place where you can buy authentic Irish goods made by manufacturers on the island of Ireland. We dedicate these two episodes to the memory of Lyra McKee. Thanks so much for listening. 